To Matthew 26, please. In Matthew 26, we are in, I guess, what we might call the final act here of Matthew's gospel. Uh, from the beginning of Matthew, we have seen this tremendous tension in the way that Jesus has been portrayed. And maybe you don't see it, but looking back, think about this. From the very beginning, Jesus is presented as the king, the promised king. He comes from the right line. He is the, uh, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And yet, just a chapter later, his life is threatened by this petty parochial king that sits under the real authority of Caesar. Uh, this is the one who is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies and yet he is born into poverty and obscurity. This is the one who has the power to heal with a word. And yet he's tired and sleeping on the bow of a boat during a storm. This is the one who teaches with absolute authority, who can explain not only the meaning of the law, but the heart direction of the law. And yet he is consistently challenged by the religious leaders and teachers of Israel. This is the one who over the last couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, we have seen the promise that he will return in power and glory and judgment. He is the one with the right to separate people one from another, to bring his people into the kingdom and to send those who are his enemies into eternal judgment. And yet, we know now that we are two days from the Passover, or at least that's where we were last week, two days from the Passover where this Son of Man who will come in power and glory is going to submit himself to the judgment of wicked men and go to the cross. Last week we saw three very different responses. Passover is coming and the preparations are underway. And the religious leaders are responding in fear. They're afraid of the growing popularity of Jesus. They're afraid of a city thwell, swelled by 10,000 10, people that is now flocking to Jesus Christ. And they're afraid that if they do something about it in that moment, that there's going to be a riot. Their response, not only to Jesus, but their response with when to deal with Jesus is governed and driven by fear. And in contrast to that, we saw the response of Mary. Matthew took us back a little bit about six days prior, and he shows us this response of Mary who takes the most precious thing that she has, this jar of ointment or perfume that was worth uh, 300 denarii, and she uses it to anoint the head and the feet of Jesus. And what she knew about what was coming, we don't know specifically, but she knew that he was worth it. She knew that this was the appropriate time and place to take her most precious possession and use it to honor the most precious person that she knew. And then we saw the absolute failure of a response from Judas, the one who would betray not just his friend, but the promised Messiah for nothing more than the price of a slave. If Mary was this shining, brilliant example of knowing what something was worth, then Judas is this horrible example of missing the value of Christ altogether, which is tragically ironic because Judas was a man who knew what things were worth. He kept the money bag because he was a thief. He knew that that perfume was worth a year's wages. He knew the price of a slave that he sold Christ for, and yet he missed the eternal value of Christ. This week we're going to move into the upper room itself. There's more preparation to be done for the Passover, but now we're not measuring in terms of years or months or even days. Now we're only hours from the cross. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19 to set the stage for where we're going today. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17, this is what God's Word says. 
Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the scene of the upper room, we cover familiar territory, and as much of Matthew's gospel goes, we know the stories, Lord, but I pray that you would move us beyond knowing the stories and that you would help us to see the truth, that these aren't just stories, that these aren't just historical narrative, but that these are the facts that surround the death of the Son of God crucified for sinners. Lord, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with the knowledge that we needed a Savior. And so we ask today, as we come to your word, whether we're familiar with it or not, that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, you would make our hearts soft to what you would have us teach. Help us to see wonderful things from your word. And then, Lord, through the power of your spirit that you've given us as the helper, help us to walk in obedience, not just to acknowledge these things as true, not just to understand what the stories mean, but to respond with obedience through our whole life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We all know what it's like to have anticipation build. When we're little kids, it's the idea of the Christmas countdown. In fact, several years ago when my kids were significantly younger, we were going to go on a vacation, and so they actually made one of those paper chains for our vacation, and every day they would rip it off, and the chain would get shorter and shorter, and as the chain gets shorter, the anticipation grows, and the preparations kind of build, and eventually you're packing, the night before if you're me, and you're planning, and you're driving to the airport, and finally the day comes, and we know what it's like to have this sense of expectation build, where if we're paying attention in Matthew's gospel, that's what's been happening. This expectation and this anticipation has been increasing over the last several chapters. Jesus, for all that we've heard and all that we've seen, is moving things toward this conclusion. He started to teach more and more often, not only about his death, but about his kingdom that is going to come, and there's tension and pressure between those two things. His disciples are growing in their anticipation of what this kingdom looks like and what their part in it is. And there's this increasing opposition to what Jesus is doing, not only publicly, but now growing in the shadows, this movement that is going to put him to death. And so with every chapter and with every paragraph and with every little piece of the narrative that we get, this tension, this pressure is coming to a head and we should be feeling it at this point. And the arrangements have been made. Mary has prepared. Judas has prepared. The religious leaders have prepared, or they've prepared to not have this happen, maybe. But today we're going to see how Christ handles preparation for this Passover meal itself. How Jesus prepares for what is going to be an earth-changing evening. And the first thing that he's going to do is prepare this Passover meal. He's going to have his men prepare a very specific thing in a very specific place. And as we open verse 17 here, we need to be reminded of the sign that these people are called to remember. There's a specific sign that was meant to be given to these people from generation to generation. And it starts off in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread. And we say, well, we thought they were celebrating Passover at this time. And how does that fit in with unleavened bread? And maybe those two things aren't very clear to our minds. So what I want you to do is turn back to the book of Exodus. It's almost all the way to the beginning, Genesis and then Exodus. And I want you to go specifically to Exodus chapter 12. If you were to read all the way through, Genesis ends with uh, Joseph dying and the people of uh, Israel being brought down into Egypt to escape famine. They wind up in slavery, and Exodus is basically 
the narrative of their removal from that slavery. We see the birth of Moses and how he's preserved, even though the Pharaoh was slaughtering all the Hebrew children. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, we have that narrative of the burning bush where Moses is commissioned to go back and to tell Pharaoh that he is called to let God's people go. In Exodus chapter 5, as Moses does deliver that message and tell Pharaoh to let his people go, Pharaoh asks a pointed, critical, and catastrophic question. In Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. When you ask who the Lord is, the Lord answers. And as we read through the next several chapters, there are ten plagues that are placed upon Egypt, and that's what they do. Those ten plagues answer that question, who is Yahweh? He is exalted above all the gods of Egypt. He needs to be front and center in the minds and hearts of his people, Israel. And as those plagues are given and they increase in frequency and in severity, the people are shown that this is who God is. As we come to Exodus 12, we're preparing for that final plague, which most of us know was the death of the firstborn in every household all across Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord told Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This is going to be the start of their year. Something so significant is happening here that it's going to change the way they even think about how they calculate their year. And on the 10th of that month, they're supposed to take a lamb, one for every household. In verse 5, we're told that that lamb should be without blemish. It's got to be as perfect as they can get. A male lamb, a year old. And they got to keep it from the 10th until the 14th day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. At a specific time, those lambs were put to death. And their blood was a sign. It was put on the household doors and the doorposts and over the lentils. And in verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that blood was a sign. That blood was a sign that something had died in the place of that firstborn that God would pass over. His judgment was passing over because something else had already taken that for him. Verse 14, This day will be a memorial day, and you will keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So this is something that's supposed to go on and on from generation to generation. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you'll remove leaven out of your houses. For anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So this Passover is the start of this Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's how those two are connected. And it's this idea of covering in the Passover and separation in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But why do they have to do this? Why do they have to do this day after or year after year from generation to generation? And it's the fact that God knows His people. He knows that they have hard hearts. God knows that they're going to be quick to forget. And if you look at Exodus 12, starting in verse 24, look what he says. God says, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he had promised, you'll keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this? You will say, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. 
For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This is supposed to be something that continually brings them back. It is supposed to be something that when their children ask, why in the world are we doing this again? They can say, this is why, because God redeemed us out of slavery. Because God took us from our bondage. Because God poured judgment out on our enemies. But God passed over us because the lamb stood in our place. It was supposed to be a consistent reminder to the people how God had directly intervened in their circumstances. It wasn't their military that freed them. It wasn't Moses' negotiation skills. It was the direct intervention of God. And there was that constant reminder that a lamb took their place, that something was going to die on that night. And through the grace of God, it didn't have to be the firstborn. It could be a lamb instead. And we see them celebrate this feast. We see it again in Leviticus 23. We see it in Numbers 9. We see it again in Deuteronomy 16 as that next generation is get ready to go into the land. And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 16, when Moses writes, as he prepares them to go into the land that God has promised them, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 5, he says, you're not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns that the Lord, of God, Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, there you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time when you came out of Egypt. You shall cook it and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses. In other words, you don't get to eat the Passover wherever you might happen to be that year. You came to the place that God had chosen, Jerusalem. You came to the place where he established his name. You had to do the Passover in the way that God called you to do it. And that's why Jerusalem is so crowded at this time. It's why you have tens, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims gathered. It's why the city is swollen. It's why the religious leaders are afraid of a riot because that is why the people have come. They have come to remember this passage from generation to generation, this memorial that points them back into their history to the time when God had redeemed a people for himself out of slavery. And that brings us to the need for a specific place to prepare. Go ahead and go back to Matthew's Gospel with me, if you would. Back in Matthew 26, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples ask a question. They come to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? The feast has to be celebrated in a specific place. It has to include specific elements. And they're going to need... A quiet place. They're going to need a relatively private place. And if you're paying attention, that sounds like an opportune time for someone who is looking to betray Jesus. Remember, Judas, from the moment when he agreed to the 30 pieces of silver, is looking for the opportune time to betray the Messiah. But Jesus knows, not only that he's going to be betrayed, but Jesus knows that his disciples need some precious last instruction before that happens. And so, in his will, he sends his disciples on a very specific errand. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Matthew gives some details. Other gospel accounts fill that in. Mark tells us that it was two disciples that he sent. Luke's gospel tells us that it was Peter and John that he sent. So he sends two of his most trusted men to find and prepare the place where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And he gives them these detailed instructions. Mark's gospel says, first, they're supposed to go into the city. Remember, you have to eat the Passover in the city. 
close enough wasn't close enough. They couldn't celebrate it in Bethany. That wasn't the approved place. They had to celebrate it in the city of Jerusalem. So he says, go into the city. And Mark's gospel tells us you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. And they're supposed to not talk to that man, not interview him. They're supposed to follow him to the house that he goes into. And when he goes into that house, they're going to talk to the master of that house and say, where's the room? And he's going to show them a guest room that is fully furnished and prepared and ready to go. It's all a little bit clandestine. No names, no street numbers. And we think, well, that's weird. Um, Why would Jesus set it up this way until you remember? Again, these are real people in real places. And Judas is looking for a time to betray the Christ. And if they come in the middle of the Passover, we lose all that is about to happen. We lose the changing from Passover to the communion celebration that we're going to celebrate today. We lose all that wonderful instruction in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 about the Holy Spirit and that high priestly prayer. If any of that happens ahead of time, we lose that. Because Judas is scheming, but he doesn't know where they're going to be yet. So Christ is going to come later on with his disciples Judas has no way of knowing where they're going, but the room and the food are now prepared. And now uh, Christ is going to begin a final preparation, and it's not a preparation of a physical place. Now he's going to begin to prepare his men. 17 through 19, focus on those physical preparations. Now as we move on from 20 and on through the rest of the evening, there's more of a spiritual preparation that's happening. The time is drawing close. We're not days away. Now we are hours away from the cross. This night will not pass without Jesus being betrayed and arrested. And again, Matthew gives us important details. We're going to fill it in with some of the other gospel accounts as far as some specific things that happened. Uh, But Jesus now is going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And he's going to be in the process of preparing his men for what is about to come. And as we move into verse 20, some time has passed and now we're in the middle of the Passover. So we need to kind of understand where we're at in that process. Like I said, there's a lot that Matthew doesn't give us as far as details, so we will pull from a couple of other Gospels. Get ready to turn to John chapter 13. Not yet, but if you need a minute to get there, you might want to prepare now. Because look at where he starts in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Now the Passover takes place in a certain place, and it takes place in a certain way. Those events unfold very predictably. There's a flow to that evening. The Passover begins at sunset. Remember, they mark their days uh, from evening to evening. The sunset would begin the Passover, and you began the Passover when they began the Passover in Egypt, and that is at sunset. And at Passover evening, everyone would gather with their family groups. Again, remember, this is a time of celebration, and celebration is done with people that you are close to. Even now, uh, when we have holidays, when we celebrate even things like 4th of July, we get together with people who generally we like to be around. Nobody plans a holiday, in general, nobody plans a holiday meal anticipating strife. I know families have dynamics, okay? But this was a time to be with people who were counted as close families or close neighbors. Remember, under the Passover, you had a lamb for every family. And if your family was too small, you got your closest neighbor together and you did that together. There's intimacy, there's fellowship, there's unity implied here. This is a time where peace would have been expected between the people that are celebrating together. And it all unfolds in a very specific way. It begins with this prayer of thanks. It's followed by the first of several cups of red wine mixed with water. 
And after that first cup that kind of launches it, then there's this washing. They would wash their hands. And that's good for physical and ceremonial reasons. Good because you're going to be eating with your hands and clean hands are necessary. More than that, it reminds you that you are not clean. If there's one thing that the law made absolutely clear, it's that you were not clean. That you needed a cleansing, something that came more than just washing the dirt off of your hands, but something that really washed you. The need for cleansing, holiness. I want you to turn to John chapter 13 with me now. Because again, we're not trying to lay out a specific timeline, but we do need to remember that in built into this ceremony is the reminder that there's a need for cleansing. And John chapter 13 starts this way, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus knows. We can't escape that fact. It is everywhere in Matthew's Gospel, and we're reminded of it here. Jesus knows that the hour had come for him to depart out of this world and to go to the Father. Now, the thing is, people aren't usually privy to the time of their death. If things are bad enough, you might have a pretty general time frame. But Jesus knows exactly not only when it is going to happen, but Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen. This is not a failure. This is not a shock. The betrayal of Judas, the uprising against him on the part of the religious leaders, doesn't mean that the plan has gone sideways at some point. He knows that everything is unfolding exactly as has been predetermined. And knowing that, knowing what is going to come, knowing what he is going to face, knowing how the disciples are going to react, it says he loved his own until the end. That always strikes me because I think that if I knew exactly how and when I was going to die, those last few hours would be a lot more focused on me than on others. Not so with Jesus. He loves his men and he loves them until the end. And so he wraps himself in a towel and he begins to wash their feet. That's a necessary job, but it's a dirty job. Necessary because these people walk around in sandals on dirty, dusty roads. Necessary because when you are sitting at table, or more accurately, reclining at table, uh, your head is fairly near the feet of the other guy, and it's way better to have the main smell in the room be dinner than the other dinner guests. So this is a necessary job, but this is a low job. To wash the dirty feet of guests in a house is a job for the lowest of the low servants. In fact, if they could avoid it, this was not even a job that a Jewish servant would have. They would rather give this off to a foreigner. In fact, it's so insulting that Peter tries to stop him. But Jesus corrects him, and look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus has 
done something remarkable. He has washed their feet, and that is a tremendous show of humility. But Jesus has also cleansed them in a much more meaningful way, and that is that he has changed their hearts. He has taken 12 men, 11 men, who lived only for themselves, and he has radically transformed them and made them followers of Christ. Not perfectly yet. They are not mature. They still struggle over a great many things. In fact, if you were to read Luke's account of this Passover meal... Plugged into this same timeline, the disciples are locked in an argument about which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine that? Jesus is hours from the cross. He knows that He has been betrayed for the price of nothing. And the disciples that He's loved till the end are arguing about which one of them is the most important and ought to have the most important position, something they have continually done before. And in that context, the greatest one who has ever lived bends down and washes their feet. But in that context, he also reminds them that their cleansing has been accomplished on a much greater level, although certainly not all of them, because he knows the one that's betraying him. And with that, I want you to turn back to Matthew 26. And we'll carry on with where Matthew goes. Because here, right in the middle of this Passover celebration, Jesus is going to give a shocking prediction. Because when it was evening, as He reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me. At this point, they're eating. That first cup has passed. The ceremonial washing has passed. They've eaten bitter herbs as a reminder of their bitter time in slavery. They've eaten unleavened bread as they have from generation to generation. The reminder that they were supposed to not only separate uh, the idea of leaven being gone, but that they were supposed to eat in a hurry. That first Passover, they were supposed to eat with sandals on, robe belted, and everybody ready to go. It's followed by singing from a group of psalms called the Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118, there's another cup of wine, and then they would eat the Passover lamb together. So it seems like they're in this part of eating the Passover lamb together. And in that context, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And we have heard that so often, and we've been brought up to this point in the gospel already, that it doesn't shock us like I think it would them. Have you ever had someone say something completely inappropriate at the worst possible moment? If you have children, the answer is probably yes. Can you imagine in the middle of a family celebration that that is the time that someone chooses to announce a a terrible life circumstance, a divorce in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner or something along those lines? In this time when they're expecting fellowship, in this time when they're anticipating peace, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He's already told his disciples that he's going to die. From way back in Matthew chapter 16, they know that. They know that he's going to be delivered over, which inspires or makes us think of some agent or somebody having to do the delivering over to the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders of the people. They know all of that. But understand that this is the first time where he's pointedly said, one of you is going to be how this comes into play. And that is absolutely shocking to them. It would have been such an outrageous, unthinkable, despicable thing to betray someone that you're sharing a meal with. To share a meal with someone, especially in that culture, implies that you're on the same team, that you're on the same page, that there's fellowship there. 
There's a great stigma attached to that. And that's why we hear the impact that it has on them. Look at verse 22. It says, and they were very sorrowful. And the idea is not just that, oh, Jesus, that's a bummer. They're not just disappointed. They're shaken by this. The words there imply a deep grief that really rattles them. What do they say? They're very sorrowful, and they begin to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And I don't think that this is an angry, What are you talking about? It's not me. I think that this has them so rattled in that moment that this is a genuine question. I think that perhaps this brings up all those times when they have been corrected, when they've been slow to understand. Remember, this is the same dinner where they were arguing about who's the greatest, and he corrected them then. Uh, My thinking is that this is a genuine concern on their part that even now one of them might go astray and they're not aware of it. See, Jesus knows who the betrayer is, but they don't. And again, please notice that. Jesus does not say, one of you is going to betray me, and every eye snap toward Judas. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, one of you is going to betray me, and they start elbowing each other. Eh, we know who that is. When Jesus sent them out to preach, he sent Judas too. When they came back, And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. We saw all these remarkable things. They don't come back and they say, we did all these remarkable things, but Judas just kind of stood to the side. Uh, The hypocrite was deeply ingrained in their body. He looked for all the world like one of them. I don't know, maybe his face flushed and his pulse went up a bit when he said that, but the hypocrite keeps up his act. And we learn through the other gospel accounts that Peter kind of elbows John and says, hey, ask Jesus, and that John asks Jesus who this is. And in verse 23, Jesus tells them who it is. They say, is it I, Lord? In verse 23, he answers, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He's not just in the room. He is close enough to share the same bowl. Again, what's shocking is not that he's going to be betrayed. What should be shocking is how very close the betrayer is to the master. We're going to come back to the response to that in a moment. But from that prediction, Jesus now goes on to describe a sobering reality because with this betrayal, there's a price. There's a price to what is going to happen. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes at his, excuse me, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Again, this is not an accident. This is according to the design of God. The Son of Man is going to have happened to him exactly what was written of him. Well, what was written of the Son of Man? We're not just talking about Matthew. This goes much, much farther back than that. Isaiah 53, one of those places that we know, this suffering servant of Yahweh passage, this one who will suffer and die for those that are called his people. Not only there, but places like Psalm 22, direct quotes that come with regard to the crucifixion of Christ that we're going to see in the coming weeks. But what else is written of the Son of Man? Not only that He will die, but that death is not the end. We're told that the Holy One will not undergo decay. We're told that even though His death is written of, so is His triumph. 
We're told in Psalm 2 that he is going to rule over the nations, that they will be his inheritance. We're told in places like Daniel chapter 7 that the Lord will give to him the obedience and the recognition and the worship of all people from every language and that his kingdom is one that is not going to pass away or be destroyed. We just spent several weeks in the Olivet Discourse. And what was the enduring, continuing, and final promise in that Olivet Discourse? That the Son of Man is going to return, and when He comes back, it will be in power and in glory and in judgment. Yes, all things are going to happen just as it is written, and that includes the death and the humiliation and the betrayal of the Son of Man, but it also includes His resurrection and His glory. Just as it is written. But what about the one who's betraying him? Look at the rest of that verse. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Was Judas just a pawn in all of this? He ever... Well, maybe he's got an out. I mean, if this was God's plan from the beginning, then somebody had to fill this role... So does Judas bear any responsibility? The answer is absolutely yes. Uh, Listen carefully. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility, and those are difficult things for us to hold in tension, although they are both true. We talk about the sovereign, omnipotent, unending, all-consuming power of God. We talk about the sovereignty of God when it comes to creation. We talk about the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. We preach about it and how the events of history play out. We affirm that God is in complete control of every aspect of His entire creation at all times. That He doesn't just know what will happen, that He ordains and designs and directs what is going to happen. But men are held accountable for their rebellion because it's willful rebellion. See, Judas knew exactly what he was doing. Judas did exactly what his wicked, sinful heart wanted to do. And Judas isn't the only example of this. We we talked about the Exodus. We talked about Pharaoh. Pharaoh does exactly what Pharaoh's hard heart wants to do. And he is judged along with the rest of the nation. Israel continually rejects God and they are kicked out of their land. And God uses the nation of Babylon to come in and judge His people. But Isaiah also says that Babylon will be judged for their wickedness. See, the thing is that God is powerful enough, sovereign enough, wise enough, even to weave human rebellion and sin into His plan to accomplish glory for Himself and salvation for His people. And while that brings further glory to God, it doesn't take away the consequences of their rebellion. He says it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That is a sobering statement. It is a reminder that this life is not all there is. If this life is all that there is, then saying it would have been better if he had not been born makes no sense. Because, I mean, on the balance, Judas didn't really have it all that bad. He got to see some amazing things. He got to hang out with the money bag for three years of ministry and enrich himself. And yeah, he betrayed the Savior and he felt bad about it. And he kills himself. We know that. And maybe if he felt bad enough, then maybe everything turned out in the end. But that's not what Christ says. He says it would have been better if he had never been born. 
Because the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. The consequences don't only last for this life. The consequences for rejecting Christ are eternal. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, says this. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume his adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe a punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is there is greater condemnation where there's greater knowledge and understanding. Jesus has actually alluded to this earlier on in Matthew's Gospel. Remember when he's talking to those cities, Bethsaida and Chorazin, what does he say? Woe to you. He says, if what was done in Tyre and Sidon had been done in you, they would have repented a long time ago. And as a result, it's going to be better in the judgment for them than it will be for you. You, Capernaum, you who saw all of these things, it's going to be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. As wicked and as terrible as they were, they didn't have nearly the revelation, nearly the light, nearly the understanding that you did. Now, put that into the context here of Judas, who didn't just know of Jesus, but was a disciple of Jesus. He walked with him. He learned from him. He ate with him. And after this act of betrayal, all that's left for him is this terrifying expectation of judgment. And Judas knows. He knows that Jesus knows, but he still keeps up his hypocrisy until the end. Look at verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Can you imagine the gall of saying that? Just to sound like everybody else in the group. Jesus says, You have said so, or you've said it yourself. Judas knows, and the others don't. But Jesus knows. The hypocrite can keep up his act. But this is Jesus, the Son of God and the coming King, and there is no hiding from his perfect wisdom. This is another one of those passages where we see great failure and great faithfulness. We come to an upper room with 12 men who should have known 12 men who by this point we think should have been somewhere further down the line than they were, and yet they don't understand what's coming. We see men who, although they have consistently seen the humility of Jesus Christ, are content to argue amongst themselves about which one is the greatest. And one of them is about to betray the only perfect man who ever lived, the only Son of God, the only Savior. His Lord, his teacher, his friend. Uh, he's about to betray someone who had shown him nothing but kindness and mercy every day of his life. And yet, in this passage, we see God's perfect faithfulness. But we see the King of Kings, who didn't come to be served, but who came to serve, washing the feet of his men. We see the Son of God who knows exactly what is going to come. And even though He has the authority and the ability to stop it right here, He's going to willingly, humbly, and obediently go to the cross so that men might be saved. 
We see Jesus Christ who is going to walk his fearful, confused, short-sighted, selfish men in the next couple of hours on this evening through the comfort of the fact that he won't leave them alone, through the promise of a helper that he is going to send to them. That even though they're going to deny it, to deny and abandon him, that he'll never leave or forsake them. There's so much in these few verses. And one of the great things about today and this passage falling where it does is that we have a chance, as far as our application goes, rather than to ask three questions, we are going to have the opportunity today to celebrate the Lord's table together, to celebrate communion, uh, not Passover. Passover as an institution was done away with on this evening and something different was started. We don't remember the promises of an old covenant, although remembering God's faithfulness will always be a blessing to his people. Now we remember the promises of the new covenant. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to close out this time and then we're going to begin our time uh, of looking at verses 26 through 29 together as we celebrate communion together. So let's pray. Lord, you're good, and it's such a shining, brilliant contrast in passages like these, where we see your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your humility just on display in the midst of the selfishness and pride of the disciples, but often in the midst of our own lives as well. Lord, we're reminded that you're good and that you're patient to impatient people. Lord, it's difficult for us to get our minds around the idea of both your glory and your humility. Lord, you knew everything that was going to pass, and still you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You deserve no scorn and no shame, but you bore our sin and our shame so that we could take on your righteousness and be called sons and daughters of God. It's an amazing thing. Lord, in our hearts, we come to the place where we recognize that we are certainly no better than these men. Slow, stubborn, prideful, and yet knowing us, you love your people to the end. You complete the good work that you started in us. And so we have much to celebrate, not only on a communion Sunday, but every day. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come to communion, whether we're inside or whether we're outside, whether we've done this one time or whether we've done this a hundred times, it's good to be reminded. Uh, as they came to that upper room, not everyone who gathered among them was actually clean. Communion is a time that causes us to reflect, to remember and to reflect. It calls us back, like it called the children of Israel back to their days of slavery. This reminds us of the fact that we were enslaved to sin. There is no one here, no matter what our background is, no matter what our education is, no matter what our training is, who was born in some state of moral goodness or even moral neutrality, who somehow came up through the ranks of life untouched. We all have a past, and that past is sin. And the only hope for you, for me, for any of us is salvation through Jesus Christ. And so this reminds us that our sin had a real price. That it required a death. 
And that as the lamb stood in the place of that family so long ago in Egypt, now a better lamb, a perfect lamb, stands in our place. And it doesn't just cover over the door, it covers over our hearts, and it doesn't just allow judgment to pass over for one night, but this lamb, whose blood cleanses us, allows the judgment of God to pass over us forever, and we enter into his presence in eternity. It's an amazing thing. We reflect on the sacrifice of Christ. We're brought again to the reminder of our desperate need for forgiveness. Uh, Celebrating communion is a deeply humbling thing because it drives us back to the gospel that says this should have been me. That death should have been mine, but praise God, it fell to Christ instead. It reminds us of the hope that is there, that there, are, there is no one so far gone that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse them. There is great hope for the sinner here who comes to the plane of humiliation and despair in their sin and then looks to Christ who redeems sinners. There's a reminder that we will do this again with Him. This points forward, not only back, but it points forward to the hope that we have in Him. And we'll go over some of those things in a moment. But there's the reminder, even as we look at this Passover setting in Matthew 26, that there is a way to look like you belong, but you don't. And there's the danger that some of us here have been celebrating this month by month, year by year, but our hearts look more like Judas than like John, just to pick two J's. I would urge you to reflect today. Not only on what Christ has done, but on where your heart is at. There's a huge chasm between knowing about Christ and knowing and being known by Christ. This is more than a coloring page. This is more than a Sunday school class. This is more than a VBS experience. This is a reality on which eternity hinges. To come to the place where you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and come to the point of salvation. If you're not there, if that makes no sense to you, if this scene sounds like a nice story and nothing more, then I would urge you not to participate in communion with us, not because we want to exclude you, but because I don't want this to confuse you. I don't want there to be assumptions made about where you stand with God. Let's talk about it. There's nothing magical about a cracker and a cup. There is great power in what we celebrate and what we remember, but the physical elements themselves cannot change you spiritually, but the gospel can. And we would love the chance to talk with you about that, to pray with you about that, to help you think through those things. But if you have come to the place where you've put your faith in Christ, then reflect on His goodness and His mercy in your own life. It's a lot to think about in a busy week, in a VBS week. And even if you weren't a part of VBS, I guarantee you, you had a busy week that went faster than you thought it would, that was, had more things in it than you planned at the beginning. And so I want to invite you just to take a couple of moments now to quietly reflect in your heart where you are with this God. What do you say about this Christ? And when I come back, we'll begin by taking the bread together. So just take a few minutes, confess sin if that's necessary, rejoice in your salvation if that is necessary, and we'll be back in just a moment.
Lord, we confess that we're a sinful people, that we would rather bring our ideas, our desires to bear on our lives. Lord, what a remarkable thing that you have saved us. Lord, I pray that if there are those here who have never considered what it means to follow Christ, uh, that you would prompt their hearts, that you would leave them dissatisfied with anything other than you. For those of us who do belong to you through faith in Christ, I pray that this is a time of reflection, repentance, and rejoicing. Lord, you are good to give us these reminders. And so we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Now you have these little plastic cups that are easier for some of us than others to deal with. So go ahead and prepare the bread. And I want to remind you that as they're doing this, this is a normal part of the meal until Jesus radically changes everything about it. They're used to the Passover. They're used to unleavened bread. But Jesus is going to say something shocking. He is going to say that this bread is not just bread, but that it is partaking of his body. That in participating with this, we take on something of the Son of God himself. Not that we physically eat him, but that we are joined to him. And so in light of that, Matthew 26, verse 26 says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, for this is my body. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, we're reminded through communion of what we have in common, that there is one Savior, one sacrifice for our sin. Uh, We are under a tent in what we're calling one summer, and it's a good reminder to us that we're one body and one fellowship in Christ. But Lord, we come to those great passages in Ephesians that speak of being united, one body, one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, all of those things that bring us together because of you. Because our identity is not in who we were or what we've done, but our identity is solely found in who you are. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and our Redeemer. We rejoice in the fact that we partake of you. Although we are so far from worthy. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now is the time to prepare that cup. And once again, Jesus brings it to an understanding not just of a cup of wine, but of partaking with his blood. You read through all of the covenants of the Old Testament, you're reminded that blood is tied to those covenant promises. That as God enters into relationship and binding agreements with men, that blood seals that. But the blood of bulls and goats, even when they were offered in obedient sacrifices, could only cover for a time. There was always the need for another one. But this Passover, we remember a perfect lamb, who the author of Hebrews says, his blood cleansed once and for all the conscience of those who come to him in worship. So although we do this time after time in remembrance, 
the Savior doesn't die time after time. His act was a once and for all sacrifice. For all those sins that were mine in the past and all that will be from this week and for as many weeks as the Lord gives you and I breath, one sacrifice was enough. Beautiful thing that he says. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup together. And let's pray. Lord, what a powerful reminder in a cup that the wages of sin is death, but that the lamb died in my place. And Lord, not only a reminder of death, but of life, because embedded in these passages where you call us to remember, you also call us to remember the fact that we will do this with you in the kingdom, that you are not done, that you are coming again that death was not the last word, that the resurrection and life are, that you have given us a living hope because you are a living Savior. So Lord, make us a people who anticipate not only the coming King, but our place with you in the kingdom. And Lord, every day, every week that you give us, help us to preach this gospel. Help us to call others, to plead with others to come to Christ so that they too might find life. Lord, what an honor it is to be considered a part of the work of your kingdom. And what a humbling reminder that you are the only one that changes hearts. We praise you because you are worthy of all of our praise. In Christ's name, amen.